Okay, I guess you've proved it. Um, <laughs> Which brings us to Turn of the Screw. Right, so by a, by a funny Turn of the Screw, that brings us to Turn of the Screw. Um, Do they ever eat in this? No. No, no but they pee a lot. Oh, wait, no, they don't. <laughs> um, wait, they're all good. It's like the show 24. You never see them going to the bathroom or eating. You also so never see them stuck in traffic, them. even though they're in L.A. Um, but it's so good, it doesn't matter. <laughs> is that what you think? Do you like it? Did you like all of it? No, I stopped watching after season six. Yeah. But well, but you watched six seasons. Yeah. So that that's six days of your life you'll never... And then on the seventh day, you rested. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> I think it's a highly entertaining show. I was actually really interested in it because of... Uh, so this is, here's theory. This counts. Um, the fact that it was... Um, kind of real time. It actually wasn't exactly if you timed it, which I did. Um, <laughs> but the fact that it was kind of real time. No, it's, it's uh, do you guys know about this, this uh, art installation called The Clock by Christian Markley? Um, I, it was at the MFA last uh, fall, and I actually um, recommended it to my film students. Um, it's a 24-hour piece which is entirely made of clips from movies in which um, there's some, either you see a clock or someone talks about what time it is, and you can know what time it is um, by watching the movie. So in other words, it's oh. pegged to the time. That's you, amazing. You started at midnight. It sounds like there's a lot of work that went into did he ask, yeah. did, did Daylight Savings screw it up? <laughs> <laughs> no, they just started an hour later. Um, but it really is amazing, partly because it's not random. That is to say that he... Um, there's always a connection from one clip to the next that makes the connection make some kind of sense. Um, so locally, it's always coherent, although if you watch you know, five minutes in a row, what's happening five minutes later has nothing to do with what happened five minutes before. But, there's um, some kind of like a stream of consciousness thought. Yeah, and it's, it's, um, well, it's like the association of ideas, like when you wonder how you got to be thinking um, about... Um, that Halloween where your neighbor's car was egged when you had just been thinking about David Hume and then you retrace your, your, your steps back um, and uh, you're amazed by everything you've gone through. It's associative in that way. Um, that is that everything gets associated with the next clip, but when you're two or three clips, well, dr dream logic works this way also. When you're two or three clips down, uh, the connection is something that you would have to work to recover because it's not an obvious one. But anyhow, it really is an amazing uh, um, thing. But the structure of 24, so here we're getting back to narrative theory, um, is that unlike any other TV show, they can't really stop um, for a commercial at a cliffhanger because the structure of most TV shows, the way TV shows interact with commercials, is that... Um, you want to see what happens next, and so the show will always break at the most intense point so that you won't flip away, but you'll watch the commercial, because after all, um, commercial TV is, um, a pro is, is, is a vehicle for delivering commercials to you. Um, and, but 24, they can't do that, because if Jack Bauer is about to be shot and you cut to a commercial, um, it's three minutes later. Mm -hmm. And unless you think of him as Keanu Reeves and it's all been bullet time for three <laughs> minutes. Um, and then he goes, whoa. Um, unless you think of it that way. Um, 
stuff happens. And so the three-minute breaks in any episode of 24, this, you don't get this effect on DVD, but if you, did you watch on TV? No. Okay, well, uh, if you watch it on TV, the effect is that nothing important can happen in those three-minute breaks. Um, what has to happen in the three-minute breaks is someone starts running a computer program and everyone is standing around being impatient. Um, and then when you come back three minutes later, it is three minutes later, and then um, the programmer says, wait, I think we got something. Um, but it took three minutes to do that, or, oh, damn, I have to reboot the computer. Um, and then three minutes later, ah, it's finally rebooted. But that, that um, forces a different kind of storytelling, um, which was one of the things that was really interesting about the show. Um, a different kind of storytelling, which probably has its source in Henry James. Um, how? I don't know. Um, because they're chapter breaks. Actually, there is a way that it has a source in Henry James, because it's um, uh, lots of 19th century um, fiction. Not the turn of the screw, but lots of what Henry James wrote was published serially which is to say that it would be, you'd get a new installment. It would be published in installments, and you get a new installment every month. Um, and uh, the breaks, um, when you know that something's been published in installments, um, you can also become aware that the, the shape of the narrative is different from something published as a single novel. Um, because installments have to give you a rhythm of a kind of climax um, that looks more important to the whole book, to the book as a whole, than they actually turn out to be if you read them as a whole. Um, there's something a little bit disconcerting about reading novels that have been published in installments um, because they have, there's, they're following a rhythm of publication um, back in the 19th century, which isn't the same rhythm as the rhythm of the story being told. And and that, that's just subtly um, uh, dis disorienting, um, and interestingly so. So I think that gets us nicely back to Henry James, who... But this one wasn't. This one wasn't, which is why it's more like 24. That is, it couldn't just follow the normal rules of cliffhangers between installments. Um, so it all works out. Um, all right, so... Um, <coughs> What we were um, talking about on yesterday, what on yesterday, what we were talking about yesterday, um, was what the governess's sense of Bly is when she gets there, what her own sensitivity. One of the things that we know about her is that she takes this job when lots of people have said that they wouldn't. Um, why does she do it? Um, what makes her take a job that so many people say they wouldn't take? Um, the, her employer, the master, as she calls him, uh, says to her, um, most people say no. Um, so, but she says yes, and there's a reason she says yes. Doesn't she have a crush on him? She has a crush on him, um, but it's... And that's something that we know from the very start. I mean, that's what the original narrator guesses um, and what Douglas more or less confirms. Um, but other potential, I mean, what, what we'll find out from Mrs. Gross is um, that's almost a matter of course. Almost everyone who considers this job and certainly everyone who takes it has a crush on the master. 
um, she says, uh, you won't be the first or the last. That's um, when she's talking to Mrs. Gross. Um, this is uh, towards the end of chapter one. Um, you, um, Mrs. Gross predicts, you will be carried away by the little gentleman. If you like Flora, you'll really like Miles. Well, that, I think, is what I came for, to be carried away, says the governess. If you find that, whoever finds the page number, just say so. OK. I think we all have different yeah, copies there. Uh, not all. Uh, yeah, maybe all. And, and, end of chapter one. Um, a page and a half before the end of chapter one. Um, so you will, so um, what Mrs. Gross is saying is, oh, Miss, most remarkable. If you think well of this one, that is Flora, yes, if I do, says the governess, you will be carried away by the little gentleman. Well, that I think is what I came for, says the governess, to be carried away. I'm afraid, however, I remember feeling the impulse to add, I'm rather easily carried away. I was carried away in London. I can still see Mrs. Gross's broad face as she took this in. In Harley Street? Um, in Harley Street. Harley Street being the, one of the most fancy streets in London. It's um, uh, more or less equivalent to Fifth Avenue. It's where the very fancy doctors are. So um, it's a place where, where um, extraordinary professional accomplishment um, goes with extraordinary social status. So in Harley Street, in Harley Street. And then Mrs. Gross says, well, miss, you're not the first, and you won't be the last. So not the first person to fall in love with the master, and you won't be the last. Oh, I've no pretensions, I could laugh, to being the only one. Um, so there's, um, he seems to be a person that um, lots of young women um, from the same background as the governess um, get crushes on. Um, so Mrs. Gross tells us. Um, why, does, why does this governess take the job then? She needs the money. It's well, she needs the money, mm-hmm. but... Well, she does mention that. There's something in that line, I, I think that's why I came here, to, to be carried away. Mm-hmm. I'm not exactly sure what she means by that, though. Um, that, okay, well, what do you think she means? Me? Yeah, oh, anyone. Um, But when she said she was carried away in Harley Street, is that when she was working on Harley Street? She's talking about when she met the master. Yeah, so she oh. went to see him. She saw, yeah, Gila. Um, I think what sort of puzzled me at first is that, you know, why would she accept this job knowing that she's never going to have any contact with him? Mm-hmm. So, you know, what, that, that's not going to help her if she wants to, you know, see him or have a relationship with him or anything. But I think that, you know, maybe there's some kind of secret thrill that she might get from being in the house that he owns surrounded by the things that he picked out. Mm-hmm. You know, that that's what she means by being carried away, that she can, like, be in this little house in the country and he's, you know, all the way in the city and she's never going to hear from him again, but she can sort of build this whole fantasy around her being in his house among his possessions. Mm-hmm. Okay, good. Yeah. Um... So it's, it's a way of being close to him, being in um, a place where she's his representative, 
Um, if you go back to the frame, to the introduction, um, we get um, um, uh, there's a long paragraph that ends all likewise thoroughly respectable. Um, that is, it's, it, this is all the um, uh, backstory. Um, and um, so far, and then we get a short paragraph. Um, so far had Douglas presented his picture when someone put a question. And what did the former governess die of? Of so much respectability? That is, it's such a respectable place. Well, what, so how did the, form, um, the former governess die? That's a question you might want to know if you were um, taking a job. Now the last three people on this job died. Um, well, it's not the last three people. It's one. But still, someone asks. Um, uh, someone put a question, what did the former governess die of? Of so much respectability, because Bly is such a respectable place. Our friend's answer, that is Douglas, was prompt. That will come out. I don't anticipate. Um, does it come out what she dies of? Sort of. What does she die of? It's, I don't know. Well, look, part of the point, part of the thing to see about this frame, this is again, both a, a theoretical or critical principle and something in general and something that really matters to this story is um, there are a bunch of unanswered questions that the frame um, gives you. That is, people ask Douglas questions and he says the story will tell. Um, you should have those questions in your mind. Douglas says you'll get answers to those questions. The fact that he's saying you'll get answers to those questions is part of the context of this. Um, there's a certain kind of logical puzzle where um, you couldn't answer the puzzle except for the fact that someone tells you that you can answer the puzzle. Um, that's one of the clues to the answer of a certain kind of logical puzzle is that it's answerable. Um, if you weren't told, if you weren't given that clue, it wouldn't be answerable. But because you are given that clue, that's the last clue that you need to know that it's answerable. So when Douglas says that will come out, what that means is when these moments come up, he's saying you're entitled to figure out what's going on. Um, not just to see this as kind of Jamesian atmosphere, but actually information that someone can work out. Um, what were you going to say? Nothing. Nothing. Maya. You covered it. Okay. But he also kind of lies. He says that she was the most respectable person until her death. Uh -huh. But she wasn't. Why not? Because she, like, had something going on with Quinn. And Mrs. Groves certainly thinks she wasn't respectable. Um, well, depends what respectable means. But, okay, that's fair. I mean, maybe she was respectable because it didn't, like, get out to the wider public. But, but the fact that he was so much lower born than she which they keep kind of harping on, and that seems notable. Like, that wouldn't be a respectable choice for a high-born lady. Well, respectable is also a, an odd word. Um, that's one of the things that whoever asked this question is, is picking up on. Um, fine word respectable, we might almost quote Shakespeare as saying. That is, it's not a quote, but it's almost a quote. Um, that is, okay, so go back. I mean, you're right to, to pick up on that. That um, the governess, so here's the instructions. Um, uh, 
there were plenty of people to help, but of course the young lady who should go down as governess would be in supreme authority. She would also have in holidays to look after the small boy who had been for a term at school, young as he was to be sent, but what else could be done? And who, as the holidays were about to begin, would be back from one day to the other. So that's what happens the second day she's there, is that Miles comes back from school. Um, um, there had been, for the two children at first, a young lady whom they had had the misfortune to lose. She had done for them quite beautifully. She was a most respectable person till her death, the great awkwardness of which had precisely left no alternative but the school for little Miles. Um, so notice the, the slight snarkiness here, which is um, respectable doesn't mean um, uh, moral or good or devoted. Um, it's, it's, if you think of your respectable teachers, um, in elementary school, I mean, not now. Um, if you think of your respectable teachers, um, they tend to be the ones who are demanding in a way that can also feel slightly hypocritical. Um, respectable is a word or is a concept that overlaps. It may not overlap very much, but it definitely does intersect the concept of hypocritical. Um, respectable, being respectable. I mean, again, it's a standard kind of thing. That is that um, there are um, self-righteous people in narratives especially, who the wrong thing that they do for to the children in their charge is they demand that um, they live respectably. Um, and the always in any narrative where such a person who's, who's um, demanding um, an aura of respectability, um, always the tension against that person will be something like you're putting respectability above truth or above moral behavior or above doing the right thing or above generosity or above. Um, it's always one of those words that's, that's a little bit, that's faintly suspicious. Um, faintly suspicious because it's valuing the wrong thing. And um, we wouldn't get that from simply she was the most respectable person. Um, that would be overreading if I tried to say, ah, respectable, see, there's something wrong there. But it's not overreading when someone picks up on that word in the next, as a response to Douglas. Yeah? It also seems odd that her death was a great awkwardness that yes. she to go to school. Why couldn't they just get a new governess right then? Well, that's what they're trying to do now. But um, it seems like it's. The, cir the circumstances surrounding yeah. it is what they could obviously do. Yeah. yeah, so it seems like there's something fishy there too. Yeah, um, but it's also that if you put respectable and awkward next to each other, um, the snark there is, um, if you do see it as snarky, that's a little bit snarky against the master. That is, um, oh, the governess died. Oh, my goodness, awkward rather than, oh, what a tragedy. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, that is, no one really cares about her, except that she should be respectable to the children. Um, that's what's important. They don't care what she is as a person. They don't care um, what, whether she's genuinely a good or a noble person. Think of whether the governess herself would want to be thought of this way. Well, you know, this is not how the governess 
I don't think we know enough about her to know that she doesn't want to be thought of as a most respectable person whose death would be awkward. She wants to be thought of as a devoted person whose death would be tragic, whose death would be devastating to the children. Um, she meant not want it to be devastating, but she would, um, it would be gratifying to her to know that it was devastating. Um, that it really mattered to them instead of being an awkwardness. Um, so that so just do you think I'm overreading to hear snark there? I mean, I, I I think that the snarky response of the person who says, "And what did the former governess die of?" of so much respectability, um, is picking up on a potential for snark, which is faintly there in the way Douglas puts it. Um, she had done for them quite beautifully. She was the most respectable person. Um, not, you know, again, not quite, quite devotedly, not quite um, um, uh, lovingly. Mrs. Gross is the excellent woman. She's the one who, having no children of her own, um, uh, she was extremely fond of these children. The governess does what she's supposed to do perfectly, but that's all the praise that she's going to have. The, the, original, the original governess, that is, say, Miss Jessel. She does all that she's supposed to do perfectly, but that's, that's as far as his praise of her is going to go. Yeah. I don't know. I found the word seduction on, like, in that same section. Mm -hmm. Where? Uh, where he says, uh, this is near, very near the end of the introduction. Mm -hmm. He says, And Douglas with this made a pause that for the benefit of the company moved me to throw in. The moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. Yes. She succumbed to it. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not Douglas saying that, but... Yeah. It's the other guy saying it. Yeah. But still, like, this is almost like an idea that whatever it is that this ma the master does to the governess, whatever control he exercises over her, is mm -hmm. something like what the control that Peter Quinn exercised over Miss Jessel. Right, There's good. something parallel about the two things. Yeah. Okay, good. So, um, so just to get there... Um, so, so we get the scene setting, then what did the former governess die of of so much respectability? Our friend's answer was prompt, that will come out, I don't anticipate. So what that is telling you is you, you have a checklist in your mind for what you're going to learn in the course of the story, and one of the things you're going to learn is what Miss Jessel died of. Um, pardon me, I thought that was just what you are doing that is anticipating, um, saying in advance what's going to happen. Um, says the same person who has um, asked about respectability, presumably. In her successor's place, I suggested, I should have wished to learn if the office brought with it necessary danger to life. Douglas completed my thought. So that is what the narrator was going to say. I should have wished to learn if the office brought with it necessary danger to life. Um, this, by the way, might be a suggestion that the narrator is female because she is putting herself in the place of the governess. Not, it's by no means decisive. It just might be a slight indication that the narrator is female. In her successor's place, I suggest that I, as a young woman, should have wished to learn if the office brought with it necessary danger to life. Douglas completed my thought. She did wish to learn, and she did learn. You shall hear tomorrow what she learned. 
Meanwhile, of course, the prospect structure is slightly grim. She was young, untried, nervous, who was a vision of serious duties and little company of really great loneliness. She hesitated, took a couple of days to consult and consider, but the salary offered much exceeded her modest measure, and on a second interview, she faced the music she engaged. And Douglas, with this, made a pause that, for the benefit of the company, moved me to throw in. The moral of which was, of course, the seduction exercised by the splendid young man. She succumbed to it. Again, that might be something that a woman would understand. Um, that is, well, I can understand what she did. Um, this makes sense to me. Um, he got up, and as he had done the night before, went to the fire, gave a stir to a log with his foot, then stood a moment with his back to us. She saw him only twice. Yes, but that's just the beauty of her passion. A little to my surprise on this, Douglas turned around to me. It was the beauty of it. There were others he went on who hadn't succumbed. Um, and one of the ladies then says, so she's going to make this great sacrifice. Just go, go to Douglas's next long speech. Um, the main condition was that she should never trouble him, but never, never neither appeal nor complain nor write about anything, only meet all questions herself, receive all monies from his solicitor, take the whole thing over and let him alone. She promised to do this, and she mentioned to me that when for a moment disburdened, delighted, he held her hand, thanking her for the sacrifice, she already felt rewarded. But was that all her reward, one of the ladies asked? She never saw him again. Oh, said the lady. Um, so... Her reward, why does she do it? Well, she's, he's so amazing and so charismatic, and she's got such a crush on him that um, she wants this moment where he held her hand and was grateful to her. She wants that to be ratified. She wants that to be real. She wants to do for him the thing that's he, that he's grateful to her for doing in advance. And um, that makes psychological sense, right? I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful thing, although a tough thing, but a wonderful thing when you're in that situation. When um, you can offer something to someone you are in love with, that you have a crush on, I mean, that you see only once, that you have this purity of... Um, of love at first sight with. And you can do something for them and somehow know that the gratitude that they're giving you now for what you're going to do is a gratitude for what you're doing for their future. And what that means is that that future is one which is as, as it is for them, is good for them the way it's good for them because of what you are doing and what they've already thanked you for. So their whole future life becomes a kind of proof that they were right to be grateful to you. Um, and your making it that proof then becomes the sign of this thing that you had between the two of you, even if only for a moment, even if only um, at that wonderful first moment of love at first sight. Um, as Othello puts it, "Twere now to die, twere now to be most happy. That is the most happy moment of love at first sight, is the first sight, is the love at first sight. 
and their quick, absolute mutual understanding between them without its getting ruined by any subsequent um, falling off that always happens when you get to know someone. But here it is. This is great. I will do this for him. And that moment when he thanked me for it and held my hand, nothing will ruin that moment. As long as I don't ruin it, nothing will ruin it. Um, so does that, do you get the feel of that? I mean, that's what, yeah, Maya and then Justy. I get the feel of that, but I don't know. It's not, like, he doesn't seem to really, like, maybe at that moment he's grateful, but I don't think he's grateful for very long because all that he wants is for her to, like, take care of the kids and, like, not bother him about them yeah. ever. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't seem that big of a, that like great of an office or that big of a help to him since he just wants her, like he doesn't really seem to care how, like what she does with them as long as they don't bother him. Yeah, and, but then remember the next thing that happens is she gets a letter in his hand and she opens it and inside is another letter which he hasn't opened. And it's a letter from him, but it says, here, I got this from the school. Um, I sent it to you. Um, do whatever you need to do. Don't bother me with it. I'm off. But what that ratifies for her again is that she's counting on him. Um, and there is that sense of, of you know, I mean, love it, that, that, that part of love at first sight, which takes the form of a willingness to engage in absolute self-sacrifice as long as you're known to have done that. Um, that's, that's what she can give to him. Um, and so she's determined to do that for him. Um, and that's what she does for him for the rest of the book. Um, what does she imagine he's thinking? In a sense, it doesn't matter, because what it does for her is it frames that particular moment when he's so grateful. On the other hand, she does fantasize that she's going to run into him on the grounds of Bly and that when he looks at her, he will look at her with gratitude. Um, yeah? It seems like her like, feeling towards him is very similar towards the children. Like, her way of being with people is to have them depend on her, and she mm -hmm. really needs to believe that she's yeah. in charge and responsible. Yeah, so, like, yeah. So, it doesn't even seem very different. Right. Yeah. yeah, good. So something like to have someone perfect relying on her. Mm -hmm. I think that's, again, a love at first sight kind of component. That is, here's this perfect person, and he's depending on me. Um, it's not just some ordinary schnook depending on me. It's not Mrs. Gross depending on me. It's the kind of perfect person who you see around in the world and who you, whose world you don't belong to. But in this case, not only do I belong to that world, but that person absolutely depends on me. And um, that's... That's amazing. I can live on that forever, is kind of her attitude. Yeah. There's almost like, in a sense, the master sets up the trap that she finds herself in. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean... Yeah, she calls it a the trap. Whole, yeah, the whole purpose of this, this part, I mean, in, for, for the author, for James. Yeah, for James. This explains the, the situation she finds herself in where she can't go for help. Yeah. She can't, even when it becomes very obvious that these kids are absolutely batshit crazy, she she literally cannot go and find somebody else because she has to take care of it herself. Yeah. If she doesn't, she's let him down. Yeah. 
But the other thing is she doesn't know whether the kids are perfect or not. That is that um, part of it is that, so, so we, what we talked about yesterday was the extent to which um, what the children might be doing and what she is doing is um, keeping intensely secret knowledge to herself about the fact, from them, about the fact that she's seen these dead people. Um, she's keeping that knowledge to herself in the hopes that they will betray themselves and reveal that. Um, and she thinks that they are keeping this intensely secret knowledge to themselves in the hope that she will betray herself and they will be able to figure out just how much she knows. Because what she wants to know is how much do they know and what she believes that they want to know, but she's not sure, is how much does she know. So if she could figure out what they were trying to figure out about her, then she would know the truth about what they knew. So you see how it's kind of going back and forth? She wants to, she is um, trying to figure out what they're trying to figure out about what she's trying to figure out. And if she can figure out what they're trying to figure out about what she's trying to figure out, then she'll know um, what they know. She, then they won't have, then she'll know their secret. Um, if what they're trying to figure out is why she's being so weird, that would suggest that the ghosts aren't real, just that the governess is being kind of strange. Um, if they're not trying to figure anything out at all, if they just trust her completely, um, then the ghosts are definitely not real, but she will have done her duty in another way, which is that she won't have, um, or at least they certainly won't see the ghosts, and she won't have told them, look, there are ghosts around here, you better be scared. So she doesn't want them to know about the ghosts. So here's her situation. The, the word that, um, again, James underlines for us is contaminate, that is, do you fear, Mrs., um, 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 that, uh, are you afraid that I'm afraid that Miles will contaminate? Remember this? And what does Mrs. Gross do? This is, um, well, if you don't remember, it's fine. But she uses the word contaminate, and Mrs. Gross looks puzzled. And, she, and the governor says, my big word left her puzzled, so she changes the word to corrupt. Um, and then Mrs. Gross says, ah, miss, are you afraid that he'll corrupt you? That is, that Miles will corrupt you. Um, so the very fact that she doesn't understand that word, and then again, um, the governess has to give a synonym for it, not quite a synonym, but a synonym that tells you the range of, of meaning of the word contaminate, what she means by contaminate, that is that she means corrupt, is also a way of underlining the word. You guys were finding yourself a little bit vexed by people completing each other's thoughts and so on, but it does have the effect, there are a lot of reasons that James does it, but one thing it does is to have the effect of saying, um, here's convergence, here's agreement, here's something that's um, important that people know that they agree on and that they're thinking and um, that they've, that here, here's, a, here's a, um, a preliminary conclusion 
Here is something that um, um, gets underlined. Here is a fact established um, whenever something like that happens. So James has very stylistic ways of drawing your attention to kind of nodes of, um, of meaning or of event in the course of this novel, which is otherwise just a series of flights and drops, just floating onwards um, in this incredible, beautiful, impressionistic way. But then there are just moments where things coincide, um, chords are resolved. Um, and those moments, again, are ones to, to that, 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 that just um, get solidified in our own minds. Yeah. I think contaminate really is the perfect word for the kind of evil that's in this house, mm -hmm. which is in the sense that you can't be a victim of it without also being a conspirator with it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think yeah. that's. I mean, it's almost like it's the cycle that's being passed down. It's yeah, what happens between Miss Jessel and Peter Quinn? Yeah, that's the way in which she becomes his conspirator is because she becomes his victim. Yeah, she becomes a victim of whatever it is, whatever what? dark, sexual, whatever you want to call it that he has to offer. Yeah, and somehow that's what's happened to the children too. And that her fear is that she can't trust the children. They're they're victims of whatever the ghosts are doing to them. Mm -hmm. But by nature of being their victims, they've also become their conspirators. They've yeah. been contaminated. Yeah. Yeah. And she is afraid that she will be contaminated. Yeah. And maybe she has been, and maybe that's what's, that's what she, you know, that's yeah. what she passes on to Douglas as well, and what he's passing on to the next person. Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah, Abby. Um, I'm just kind of confused by this next bit where Mrs. Groves, like, seems to, like, accidentally say something she doesn't mean to. Yeah, we'll, let, we'll get to that in a minute. Um, that's absolutely important, and we'll get to that in a minute. And again, you know it's absolutely important because um, of the she had the air of saying um, something you know that, that she didn't mean to, and we were confused. And um, the, the 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 you know there's some um, in reality not quite understanding what someone has just said to you. That happens all the time, but narratives don't narrate that. Um, if stories. No story will, you won't be reading a Dickens story and have someone say, um, you know, did you put the tea on, love? I can't hear you. What did you say? I said, did you put the tea on, love? Oh, yes, I did. Um, the only reason Dickens would put something like that in is that he had to meet a word count. Um, and, but there's no other, but, but the point is you would never find that. Um, if there's a misunderstanding, in a story, in real life, there are misunderstandings every second. But if there's a misunderstanding in a story, um, then there's a reason for it. Um, we could just so you know that there's a term for this in philosophy, but I think it applies to to um, narrative as well, called the principle of sufficient reason. Um, that's a term from Leibniz, and um, what the principle of sufficient reason is is that if there's a phenomenon, you have to, in order to understand it, you have to say why it's there. Now, in real life, the reason there are phenomena, um, neurobiologists, is because there's just a lot of noise um, with signals. Um, in the more perfected a narrative is, the less noise there is. Um, it's all signal. Um, especially in Henry James, it's all signal. Do people know what I mean by signal and noise? Um, anyone not? Sort of, you don't? Um, so basically, it's a general theory of, of um, any kind of communication of information um, that there's a trade-off between um, how much information you, you get and how much random um, uh, non-information comes along with it. It's impossible to have perfect information. 
um, in um, so that so that you have so information always has to be redundant in real life in order to make sure. I mean, to take an example, when whenever you download anything on a computer, um, every every um, bit is actually downloaded three times. Um, so that if you're downloading, you know, if, if you download a web page, every single number that you're downloading gets downloaded three times, not once. Um, and the reason it's downloaded three times is that if there's a mistake, the computer will take two out of three. So if, let's say, you're looking at, at a certain address and, it's, and, and you get, um, um, it should be 222, and most of the time it will be 222, but sometimes it will be 227. Um, the computer will say, okay, two out of three means the seven is a glitch. Um, if it's 277, then it'll say, okay, the two's a glitch. Um, so that's noise. There's always noise with a signal. And so in real life, we always, um, you know, slip up, say things that are wrong, um, say things that, that don't make sense. Um, but we say enough that the signal comes through despite the static. Noise and static are the same thing, but despite the static, that comes along with it. Um, in narratives like James's, in narratives which are refined and refined and refined and refined, um, well, we talked about, and you actually were interested in this, the difference between a photograph and a painting by Claude is that in a photograph, you know, you've seen, it's, it's like looking at bloopers um, on, a, on a movie or a TV show, you know. Look, it's, the, it's Downton Abbey, and everyone is, is living in Downton Abbey, and it's so wonderful. But God, it's kind of like interesting that there was um, this airplane um, that kind of flew over the chimney and left a contrail, and um, that's a slip-up. Um, that means that, that uh, when they were filming it, um, they didn't notice this airplane um, go over that scene, and now there's a blooper. Um, you can see that it's actually um, shot in the 21st century and not at the beginning of the 20th century. Um, in a painting, there wouldn't be such a thing. That's noise in Downton Abbey. The signal is supposed to be 1912 and no jumbo jets. Only the Titanic, actually no more Titanic either. Um, so the signal is supposed to be the Titanic has gone down and it's idyllic, um, the idyllic end of an era in which all sorts of 20th century machinery doesn't exist yet. The noise is, but a 20th century machine got into, or a 21st century machine got into the picture. In a painting, that wouldn't happen. In a painting, there'd be no noise because it's refined and refined and refined. Same with turn of the screw. Anything that looks like noise, like, but wait, what did you say? Um, is actually, we have to understand, to be a signal disguised as noise. Um, so you probably know Chekhov's famous dictum that if there's a loaded gun in chapter one, what has to happen in chapter two? Someone has to use it. Yeah, yeah. You don't tell people that there's a loaded gun in your story um, unless that gun gets used. It's, it's like... Um, well, I put the loaded gun on top of the dresser where I knew the children wouldn't be able to reach it, so it was quite safe. Um, if there's that sentence in um, a story... Child's getting their face shot off. Yeah, or something. Um, but, but, the, but there's no point 
to the fact that there's a loaded gun, to the, the fact that the narrative is telling you there's a loaded gun, unless it's used. And so what could just be random noise, you know, here's a room, one of the things in the room is a loaded gun, another thing in the room is a commode, another thing in the room is a wet, a wet bath towel, you know, it's a mess. Um, in real life, so what? There are plenty of houses with loaded guns, and only a very few of them um, uh, yield tragedy. Um, but in a story, the loaded gun yields tragedy. It's got to go off. Yeah. That's kind of like in My Father's Dragon. Mm -hmm. um, the kid like brings these like random stuff with him. Yeah, and he exactly. Uses every single thing for a specific purpose, and it works for that purpose. Right. Exactly. Um, and then I think this book, uh, I just thought it would make. You know how um, somebody took Jane Austen stories and yeah. changed them, and there's like Pride and Prejudice and zombies. Yeah. This should be zombies. That's what happened to Quentin and Mrs. Jessel, and like yeah. that's the contamination that's creeping in. Nice. Good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so and it's, maybe the contamination that's creeping in is 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 uh, smoke monsters, noise, which turns out to actually become a smoke monster. All right. So let's get to let's get to um, this question of um, the noise about um, um, I guess it's at the end of chapter two, I think. Um, um, no, that's a contaminate. Yeah, yeah, sorry, a little bit after that. So uh, two pages from the end of chapter two. Um, there's the, a great conversation where Miss Jessel and Mrs. Gross agree that a boy should be bad. Um, that is that uh, nonetheless, well, this is actually a question of, si of, of signal and noise even here. Um, nonetheless, the rest of the day I watched for further occasion to approach my colleague, especially as toward evening I began to fancy she rather sought to avoid me. Have you guys found that? Mm -hmm. um, I overtook her, I remember, on the staircase. We went down together, and at the bottom I detained her, holding the her there with a hand on her arm. I take what you said to me at noon as a declaration that you've never known him to be bad. She threw back her head. She clearly by this time and very honestly adopted an attitude. Oh, never know him. I don't pretend that. I was upset again. Then you have known him. What, what would be the end of her sentence? Yeah. To be bad. Yes, indeed, miss. Thank God. On reflection, I accepted this. You mean that a boy who never is? And she finishes the sentence, is no boy for me. OK, so um, I held her tighter. You like them with the spirit to be naughty, then keeping pace with her answers, with her answers. So do I, I eagerly brought out. But not to the degree to contaminate. To contaminate, my big word left her at a loss. I explained it to corrupt. She stared, taking my meaning in, but it produced in her an odd laugh. Are you afraid he'll corrupt you? Um, OK, so notice that what being bad would be is something like being noisy. That's noisy kids, um, whisperings, laughter. Um, so being bad would be, well, again, you know, the nurse's song actually, actually fits in perfectly here. That whisperings in the Dale, those are signals. Um, people are whispering about having sex with each other and everything they say matters. Laughter from the hills, that's noise. That's the difference. Signals are things you have to be careful with. Noise is stuff you can ignore. It's just part of the general background of things. So being naughty, that's being noisy. But if Miles is always perfect, then there's never a moment when he's not being very careful to signal 
and not to be noisy. He's being artful, just as James is being artful. So we're here getting a signal about whether Miles is signaling or being noisy. Then, and this is the part that we wanted to get to, the next day is the hour for my drive approach. I cropped up in another place. What was the lady who was here before? The last governess, asked Mrs. Gross. She was also young and pretty. Almost as young and almost as pretty, miss, even as you. Um, so that's a kind of creepy little moment. Um, ah, then I hope her, her youth and her beauty helped her. I recollect throwing off. He did. See he seems to like us young and pretty. Oh, he did, Mrs. Gross assented. It was the way he liked everyone. But no sooner had she, no, but she, she had no sooner spoken, indeed, when she caught herself up. I mean, that's his way, the master's. Um, I was struck. So all of this is saying signals here, not noise, not just a random mistake, um, not just some, some weird misunderstanding, some real understanding here. So who is Mrs. Gross talking about? Miles. No. Quint. Quint. Yeah. So, um, and then she quickly changes that to try to say, no, I was talking about the master. So that's a lie. She was talking about Quint. Um, and that's the he who is now entering into the story. Well, it's she does turn it into and he did. Um, but there's a suggestion here that Peter Quint went around seducing every governess who came, and she's forgotten that Quint is dead um, because that's his way. These beautiful governesses come. Quint has sex with them, partly because he kind of substitutes for the master. These hot and bothered young women come. And the only guy around is Quint, and he's seductive. Um, luckily, he's dead. Um, but there's at least the, the important thing. Look, here's the very important thing, because you're going to finish this for Monday. The really important signal here, even more important than notice that there's a reference to Quint here, is notice that in this book, pronouns can be confusing. Notice that when you see a pronoun, if there's two possible antecedents to it, think about both of them. Don't think that, oh, I'm just confused because James isn't being clear. If James is giving you two possible antecedents, what he's told you at this moment is, I am totally aware when I give you two possible antecedents to a pronoun. I couldn't be more aware of anything. That's what he's telling you. So notice that as you finish the book. Notice the pronouns. Notice the pronouns in conversation. They are of absolute importance. Okay, have a The governess's name? No. No, she's as um, anonymous as the frame narrator. You also don't know Miss Jessel's first name. Yeah. But you do know Peter. Do you know 